Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is the 30th of October. Tomorrow is um, Halloween for those of you not not paying attention. So let me just uh, let me just say that uh, a couple of days ago when we arrived at uh, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, uh, everybody is already like they have like they're dressing every day. And so uh, everybody was dressed as a different um a different crayon in the Crayola color box. And so, you know, there's lots of options there. That was very entertaining and fun. And then um, yesterday, it seemed to me that everyone was dressed like as a different Christmas ornament. I didn't know really, maybe that was the theme. I have a hard time imagining that was the theme, but everybody, um, that's sort of what it looked like to me. People were dressed as uh, different Christmas ornaments. So it was kind of fun. Um, I have no idea what today will bring, but uh, after I go see Matthew, I will. Uh, I-, I could let you know tomorrow what today's theme was. I don't know. I've obviously been a Halloween fail this week in terms of my showing up in any sort of costumery. Um, but Matthew's doing well. Thank you so much for those of you who've been praying. We will uh, continue to um, now do post-operative recovery. So thank you, thank you, thank you again for, uh, for all your prayers. All right, I have a quick uh, World Series update. The series is going to Game 7. There's probably a lot of people listening who are either not baseball fans or because your team is not in the World Series, you're no longer paying attention. But this is, um, uh, it's not unprecedented, obviously, for there to be a Game 7. But never before, never before have the road teams won each of the first six games of a World Series. And so... For those of you who are not familiar with baseball, there's a home team and there is an away team or a visiting team. And the visiting team gets to go first because the home team has home field advantage, which means they get the last at bat. And so um, the home team normally has an advantage, right? Well, not in this World Series. So far, so far, it's been a disadvantage to be at home. It's kind of curious, right? I don't know what we could make of that necessarily, but... Um, I just thought that I would lift this up. It's a it's certainly unusual and curious that the Washington Nationals had a seven to two victory last night in Houston, and that forces this winner take all finale. Um, and so, it, you know, I just think it's kind of exciting. So there you go. People are going to be paying attention to that today, uh, and I'm not really standing on either side. And so, go Nats and go Astros. Go, everybody. Okay. Uh, We are going to talk sports a little bit with Peter Kapsner. I'm going to lead off with a conversation about NCAA student athletes who can now be compensated, or actually maybe by January of 2021, they can be compensated for their names, uh, images, and likenesses. It looks like Congress may respond to that NCAA measure by uh, taxing scholarships as income. This should be fun. That's up next here with Peter Kapsner. All right, Peter Kapsner is back with us. He and I like to 
call this little series Fifty Shades of Truth because there is uh, lots of untruth out there in the world, and we like to help uh, people sort through it. So, Peter, welcome back. Yeah, great to be with you, Carmen. Love the baseball theme this morning. I confess that I stayed up relatively late last night. Uh, I'm pretty big baseball fan and caught uh, several of those Indians. It was a pretty epic game six last night. Uh, and so tonight should be pretty interesting between the Astros and the Nationals, to say the least. Okay, so uh, tonight is game seven? It is, like yeah. This tonight, it's not tomorrow night. Uh, yeah. Okay. It is, it is winner take all this evening for sure. So, right. but yeah, there tonight, was uh, managers getting ejected last night, people carrying their bats to first base after they hit home runs. You know, there's a lot of drama going on last night. It was pretty interesting to watch. So you're a sports fan. So uh, we're going to lead off with a couple of sports stories today. The NCAA voted unanimously on Tuesday to clear the way for athletes to profit from their names, images, and likenesses. Not actually going to happen probably until uh, 2021. Um, tell us, uh, I don't know, give us the, give us the upside and the downside of this. Yeah, it's a pretty stunning development actually, Carmen. And because it, it does pave the way for college athletes then to make money, which historically has been uh, one of the most restrictive dimensions about being a college athlete. And, uh, I was one, I was a scholarship athlete myself and, uh, you really, you can't necessarily hold any, just any kind of job. It's very limited as to what you can do to make income. Uh, I will say this too, when you are an athlete, your life is pretty much class and then uh, hours and hours and hours of whatever sports team that you're a part of. And so uh, it's a pretty rigorous thing. And, and they don't want you to try to make money outside of doing your quote unquote work as an athlete. And so the, the change here is that now athletes can sign uh, endorsement deals, maybe with shoe companies. They can hire agents uh, to help them sort of navigate their jump, hopefully to the pros for many of them. And boy, as soon as you start getting that kind of money involved with all of this, uh, I think as you and I both know, money just leads to so many different corrupting influences. And the NCAA already is under a lot of cloud of scandal about how coaches have historically funneled money sort of under the table in various ways through relatives and through other means to athletes. So I don't know where this is going to go. It's a little crazy making to me at this point, but uh, it seems like it's just going to pour a lot of gasoline on already what is sort of a corrupted financial fire in sports in, in college. I realize that nobody asked me in advance of the vote, but um, I feel like if they had asked me, I, I would have just recommended that these 231 NCAA schools that generated a total of $9.2 billion in revenue in 2015, yeah. so that number has probably gone up, maybe they should just pay their student athletes more than uh, what they're currently getting, which is an average of $22,000 a year in scholarships. I mean, maybe the uh, maybe what should be happening here is that schools who are really profiting from NCAA sports, maybe schools should, should simply increase scholarships to student athletes. Like that's, And then it would be more fair and it would be more across the board. And it would, I mean, any star athlete who's going to get some sort of contract, you know, with a shoe company or whatever, that person is only as good as the team they're on. And if That's all exactly of right. the if all the money is going to go to you know one star player, I mean there's enough like you know sabotage out there that you know you're going to try to bring that one guy down because you know he he's benefiting financially personally you know from some I mean I'm just talking about human nature here I, that, that's probably not a very Christian worldview uh, approach <laughs> to this but I'm just telling you I I don't see good things here. 
No, absolutely not. And you just nailed, I think, what's going to be the biggest part of this is that there's going to be a disproportionate effect on the most sort of successful and, and highly visible athletes. Like an Alabama football player is going to benefit in massive ways as opposed to maybe a swimmer out of Wake Forest or something like that. And not to mention all of the, the uh, academic kinds of scholarships or music scholarships that are offered. There's going to be really no opportunity for somebody who has an academic scholarship. Uh, and, and they like athletes. If you have an academic scholarship, the kinds of honors programs that you have to be a part of and the rigor associated with them is akin to being a college athlete. And they're not going to have an opportunity to profit off of their name. Nobody's going to say, wow, look at, you know, the amazing physics work that you did. And we're going to give you some sort of a shoe contract. So that I think to your point, it would probably be a more promising pathway to allow for some, some, uh, just way of life stipends for some of these scholarship students, because then you can, you don't have to worry about having a job to make money, give them a stipend so they can just buy pizza on a Friday night for Pete's sake. It's so restrictive. And this is not going to help the deal at all. All right. I have so many thoughts on that, but we're going to have to return to that in a minute. Um, How about the use of the word glorious, glorious, which in my (laughs) view, this is a word that should be reserved for God and at least things that are godly. But uh, the word glorious is now being used um, to describe as inherently praiseworthy the victory of biological men over biological women in women's sports. Wow. That is, I mean, I think there's a big conversation you and I can have about that, but not glorious is not part of it. Uh, The word glory in the biblical text literally means weight. If you derived it from the Hebrew, it would be weight, which is why C.S. Lewis wrote that book, The Weight of Glory. And the idea of the weight is is not necessarily a heaviness. It's a little bit more like sort of a source of it. It emanates from. And so when God says things like, I don't share my glory with another, what he's saying is that all of what we see in this visible world that is good and worth of, worthy of worship and all of these things that bring in our invisible world, our heart uh, peace and our soul rest, All of that comes from me. I bring the full weight of glory into this world, and I don't share that with another person. So that is a word that I hesitate to use to describe anything going on in this world, to not the least of which would be some kind of victory, supposedly, of male athletes over female ones. So the the Wired article to which I am referring talks about these shining examples of what humans can accomplish with training and effort um, and as if those performances are inherently praiseworthy. But it's also just a really, really direct threat to women's athletics, because if biological men are going to be increasingly participating as competitors against biological women, I mean, the women are not going to win. No. And I mean, this gets into the transgender conversation that you and I have had about transgender athletes as well uh, on a few different occasions is that it it brings up an inherent um, competitive disadvantage for the people on the downside of this. And to your point, I mean, you can just look at the raw numbers. If you run a hundred meter dash and you look at the numbers throughout history, the world record holders of men are going to be a bit faster than women. Uh, Men can jump higher. Men can, uh, they can tend to throw further. Um, And of course there's plenty of women that are going to be able to throw further and, and jump higher. But at the elite athlete level, the, the one-tenth of one percent of people that are going to make money doing this sort of thing, the elite athletic men are going to tend to outperform elite athletic women in the different sports. And that's going to bring up an, an unbelievable disadvantage. I don't know why we would be celebrating some victory. It feels like Genesis 3 life where the male and the female are seeking to drive each other out of creation somehow. And it's just another uh, example of this where men and women just simply 
uh, struggle to get along anyway. The last thing we need to do is celebrate some sort of big victory over the other gender. All right. So uh, on as we go to the break, I just want folks to remember and consider who we are and whose we are, whose name we bear, whose likeness and whose image. Um, you're not going to be compensated today by the world for uh, bearing the name of Jesus or bearing the image or likeness of God. But but there's a great reward and great glory uh, for doing so. So let me just encourage you. Uh, that's our that's going to be our segue here to a quick break. Peter and I, when we come back, we're going to talk about, wow, just a really deeply disturbed individual uh, happens to be a Canadian He was a model. We're going to talk about that word. Um, He's known as Zombie Boy, and he has recently died. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, returning to my conversation with Peter Kapsner uh, this morning. Peter, you were the host of this show on August the 1st, 2018, when this story might have been first covered. Um, But we're covering it again today because the autopsy report by the Quebec coroner was just released on Monday related to the death of Canadian model uh, Rick Ganest, also known as Zombie Boy. Um, Describe for people who this individual is became because he is not he does not look physically like a person yeah yeah this is uh boy it's if you just if you're listening this morning and you just even google zombie boy uh the images that you'll see are pretty disturbing in in terms of somebody who basically used almost every square inch of his physical body on one side of it in particular and then the the rest of his body as life carried on to to turn himself almost into the skeletal figure through tattoos all the way over the top of his head um, black around his eyes. I mean, it's very difficult to describe. It is worth seeing. And uh, it, you know, Carmen, I don't, I don't know what to make of all of it other than to say that uh, once you start down a certain kind of pathway in life, you know, you, you sort of, it starts to take a hold of you in some ways. And and I think it doesn't matter whether it's uh, this person who is trying to make a name for himself through tattoos and to turn himself into sort of this model that is a zombie and a symbol of death. Uh, obviously, it can involve drugs or alcohol, relationship, any of these things that we start to turn towards in our lives. I mean, it can be success, money, fame, obviously, as well. And uh, and we turn towards these things and you start taking steps, believing that if I just get to this point or if I can just do this thing or in his case, if I can just tattoo myself in this way, I'll uh, finally experience peace and wholeness in my soul. And uh, it can be if I can just get to this rung of the ladder, if I can just get that relationship sort of solved, if I can just get that, I'm finally going to feel peaceful. And uh, this person certainly made a name for himself, a bigger name for himself than you and I combined will ever make, uh, you know, in, in whatever circles in which we run. And yet at the end of the day, um, as the whether it was a suicide or whether it was an accidental death, that's up for grabs at this point. But uh, what is uh, agreed upon is that he was a very, very troubled individual that as he walked down this road, never really found wholeness in his soul and was filled with depression and turmoil and drug use. And all of these things. And it, it just makes me sad, Carmen. It's, it's sort of a very stark, I think, expression, as I said, of when we substitute the realities of God's kingdom that can bring peace in a very difficult life in this world for anything else that, that sort of masquerades as it. And this is a great example of it. And it's very difficult to see, to say the least. I think the word model is one of the um, 
one of the words that stands out in relationship to this individual that I find particularly troubling, because um, if you were to, and I'm not necessarily recommending that people you know, look at his Instagram feed because it's there's graphic there's graphic photography of this individual. And obviously, in order to see a body that is completely covered with tattoos um, and then people who have been tattooed to complement the tattoos of this individual, um, in order to see all of that, there's a lot of a lot of physical flesh exposed. Um, uh, but the word model is yeah. disturbing to me when it's used here. So when we talk to Christians about who after whom are we modeling our life? When we talk about bringing our life into greater conformity with another image, we're not talking about bringing our bodies into some sort of dramatic artistic conformity to the devil or a, 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 a skeleton that is animated, which is essentially who this person became. Um, talk about the call, the invitation for people to have their lives be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah, that that is the call, Carmen. That is, I mean, we are invited. There's one invitation we're given in this life, and it's the same invitation, excuse me, that Jesus gave those 12 disciples at the beginning, which is, will you follow me? And uh, if you say yes to that following of Jesus, the idea is that you begin to spend time in your life with Jesus in a variety of ways to the point that you start, he is your model. When you see the way he thinks about God's kingdom and, and how he expresses life in God's kingdom, as in the written text of his word, you start taking on the realities of how you think about the kingdom in the same way. Um, when you see his character, how he treated people, what emanated from the inside out in him and, and how he, he how he dealt with people in power, how he dealt with people in need and all of that, th- this is the model. Um, when you see even his power and authority that comes not from fancy letters and not from great titles, simply because he was so deeply connected with the Father. There was a power and authority that came from that place. This is our model. This is what it means to be Christ-like. And uh, that that is, instead of looking at so many of the different models in this world, right? I mean, pick your profession. We all have our models. Pick your person. We all have our models. And we say, if I can just be like that person, if I can just become a bit more like that person in that situation— that's what I want to do. But Jesus really is our model, and uh, and that's what it means to become Christ-like. So I think sometimes the Christian faith is a little bit more complex, but a little bit more simple than we make it out to be. I think sometimes, Carmen, unfortunately, we think, well, I'm just going to believe that Jesus died on the cross, and then I get into heaven when I die. But then we look at all these earthly models for a lifetime. But the idea of being a Christian is that you're following Jesus, and he becomes your model in a variety of ways for what begins to take root in your own life as well. It's not an easy process. It's a crazy world. It's filled with sin. There's a ton of resistance, but there is the possibility to actually and authentically not just act like Jesus in this world, but to become like him as our model. And uh, boy, I, if there's anything we can fix our eyes on on a daily basis, and it's it's so what I appreciate about your show is that what you're, that's what you're doing every morning is we're fixing our eyes on Jesus together in this way and uh, and trying to look towards him to be our model for how to do life in this world. So I feel like you and I could um, package all of these conversations we've had this morning because there is this con- there is this underlying current here of whose name, whose likeness, whose image, yep. who's the model, um, whose glory am I after? What what are we really trying to achieve? And so as we're thinking through these things today, and as we are having conversations in the culture um, about hey the NCAA and or the autopsy related to this young man in in Canada, um, let us be people who are 
bringing to that conversation the name of Jesus, a reminder that people bear the image and the likeness of Christ into the world, that he is our model, and that it's to God's glory alone that we are um, seeking to live and direct our lives. So, Peter, thank you so much for helping us have those conversations today and bringing the truth to bear on life. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I always love being with you, Carmen, and I'm really glad that things went well with Matthew, too. I'll continue to pray for him. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break uh, for Making Your Life Count, and then we'll be right back. Okay, so a lot of fast-moving developments in the impeachment inquiry. A resolution has been filed. House Democrats are hoping to wrap up impeachment depositions um, in what was a previously scheduled recess for next week. They're hoping to begin public hearings when they return on November the 12th. We're going to talk with Hunter Baker about why all of this matters, uh, and we're also going to ask him to unpack for us, uh, well, if there's a nightmare scenario, what does it look like? All right, because, you know, it's the day before Halloween, so I'm trying to work the word like nightmare in or zombie or, you know, other things. We'll be right back. I just read a quote that really inspired me. Gratitude turns what we have into enough. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, God is honored when we are grateful for what he has provided. And there are times when I'm embarrassed to admit that in one moment I'm filled with thanksgiving and in the next, I'm overcome with a desire for more. I speak from experience. Whether it's a raise at work or a bigger house, it's hard not to get caught up in wanting more. It's human nature to want all the things money can buy. But the challenge is to shift the focus and be grateful for all you have, even if you don't get what you want. So the next time you need to curb the constant craving for more, say a prayer of thanks for all that God has given you. A mindset of gratitude will help you live a life of contentment, confidence, and generosity. That is the music, uh, which means Hunter Baker is back in the house from Union University. Welcome back. Well, hi there. Glad to be with you. Well, thank you so much. We have a lot of, uh, a, a, well, a lot of threads to pull today related to one subject, and that is the impeachment inquiry. So I know that a resolution has been filed, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and then I also know that we've learned that House Democrats, because they're hoping to wrap things up uh, before the end of the year, they are uh, planning to have uh, impeachment depositions in in what was a previously scheduled recess next week and then planning to begin public hearings hearings on November the 12th. So um, tell us, you know, where we are and what we know and, uh, gosh, help us be up to speed on this. Well, uh, I, it looks like the Republican complaints about the process um, has pushed Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats toward – uh, a formal vote uh, to authorize the impeachment inquiry. And um, <clears throat> I think they've been trying to avoid that for a couple of reasons. First, sort of this kind of quasi-impeachment process they were in was advantageous. Uh, you know, they were able to hold these meetings, secret meetings through the Intelligence Committee, 
And um, that way you're just able to sort of uh, leak out the news that is favorable uh, to your narrative as you go. And uh, we've seen that now for <clears throat> for a few weeks. Um, and I think that that probably they probably viewed that as, uh, you know, working really well for their case. But uh, but now there have been enough complaints about it that is turning attention to the process. So now you get to the point of, of an actual vote to begin the impeachment process. And I think that that's painful for some Democrats because you have a fair number of Democrats in the House who have who are in districts that were won by Donald Trump. And uh, those congressmen and women are going to be reluctant to vote for impeachment because then that will obviously be used against them in the next election. Uh, so that's where we are, but they're going to have to do that. Uh, I only know of one Democrat right now who's going to vote against it, uh, against moving forward. We'll see if there are others. Um, and indeed, that is a Democrat who is in a formerly Republican-held district and a Trump district. Uh, as far as where we're going to go, uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens when we when we move to the open hearings. Um, it will be also be interesting to see if the Republicans are allowed to have the witnesses that they request. Uh, but certainly, they will get the chance to do some cross examination. All right. So I'm taking note of the fact this is actually uh, Paul Perot's language and I'm stealing it. But um, I'm I'm very aware that tomorrow, actually, maybe for some people today or already earlier this week, um, Hallow Thanks Christmas has already begun. Right. So we're in the season of of holidays. Right. Happy Hallow yes. Thanksmas. Is that is that how I'm supposed to say it? OK. Close, happy Hallow Thanksmas and a Happy New Year, something like that. So Merry, uh, Merry Hallow Thanksmas, where we move into the season culturally, where people are focused not not on the political minutiae, but they're focused on, you know, family and travel and gifts yes. and end of year planning and New Year planning and um this is a this is going to be a bit of a spo- a seasonal spoiler if what the Democrats have in mind is is really really emphasizing this over the holidays. Yeah, but I mean that that is the timeline, right? I mean that's um, at mm. least as far as what happens in the House. Um, mm. yeah, yeah, remind and, us, and remind think, us, and, and th- remind us well, of that because I, th- I think that's helpful. All right, there's this House process, <clears throat> and then. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So you have the you have the House impeachment. Uh, I think for a lot of Americans, impeachment equals removal, but that's not the case. It means that they are uh, they are basically making the recommendation to remove the president, which leads to a trial in the Senate. And um, this is classic American constitutionalism. Uh, the House is the <clears throat> the House of Representatives is the place of political passion and popular. Uh, will and uh, super partisan politics. That's what the House is. Um, and the idea, the, the constitutional ideal has always been that the hot coffee from the House spills over into the saucer of the Senate where it can cool and uh, in a more deliberative process can take place. And of course, that would be the trial uh, that would follow impeachment. All right. Continuing my conversation with Hunter Baker from Union University, I think that as we uh, as we think about 
what is ahead in the 2020 cycle in particular. Maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, we are going to have some elections. They are now just over a year away. Um, Maybe there's a nightmare scenario for Republicans, but Democrats have their nightmares as well. I want to talk because, you know, tomorrow's Halloween, so I'm trying to use provocative language today. (laughs) Sounds good. What what would be the nightmare scenario for Republicans from your viewpoint? And uh, and maybe what are some of the nightmares that Democrats are having? Yeah, well, the nightmare for Republicans is that you uh, that you have credible witnesses um, make it excruciatingly clear that Donald Trump was running the United States foreign policy for his own benefit. Uh, that's the that's the nightmare scenario. And then. Uh, you know, if if he is impeached, um, and even if he's not convicted, if it if it looks if the evidence looks really strong, and if people are convinced by it, then the Republicans probably get wiped out in in uh, in 2020. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if things continue kind of like they are now, I think, and and a lot of Americans look at this and they go, wait, what? You're impeaching him because of Ukraine something? What? Uh, Then the Democrats look bad and then they can lose. All right. Uh, Hunter Baker and I got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to we're going to shift gears a little bit and have a different conversation Uh, Maybe about what the right gets wrong about liberal democracy. That conversation up next on Mornings with Carmen. There's a ghost. There's a ghost inside of me. Not like those dreams in old bed sheets. Saying trick or treat. That would be Paul Perot's effort to get us ready for (laughs) Halloween. (laughs) Me? That's where he goes, by the way. There's some there's some mornings where Hunter, we have to we, we force ourselves to have a little fun because the world is is weighty. The, the issues of the world are weighty, and so you know some days little fun, trick or treat. So well, even we, it's tomorrow. We, we need a little fun. My I'm getting pushback from my 17 year old because I've declared that he is definitely too old to go trick or treating. Uh, hey, can he not so, chaperone? I feel like if you're chaperoning little kids, then you it's still legit. Now, if you're just out there with a tribe of your friends looking like hoodlums, not okay. But, you know, I told you're functioning him, I told as him, a chaperone. Yeah, I told him that nobody is super excited to see just teenagers coming to their door, you know. <laughs> no. Late at no. night. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I would like to have a conversation with you about the maybe the light maybe one way to frame this is do democracies have a life cycle we have seen democracies die over the course of time and there are those who would point to what is happening in america right now and the growing divide among we the people and and you know there we either need to learn how to live together in a functional democracy or we are going to sort of continue to devolve in a negative direction so can you just talk with us a little bit about this this sure. conversation about sort of the life cycle of democracy and where we are in this one? Yeah, it's fascinating that you brought that up. I, I just came, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conference, um, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, and, and our topic was, has democracy had its day? Mm. Um, and so, you know, and uh, some significant people were there. David French was there, for example, uh, famous anti-Trumper. 
Um, <clears throat> and so we were debating these things. Uh, and, you know, my conclusion is that that for a, uh, a liberal republic, not meaning left wing, uh, but for a liberal republic to to hold together, uh, there there has to be some kind of integrative force. There has to be something that that we sort of love and respect and admire together. Uh, and for a really long time in the U.S., that was basically um, basically kind of an informal uh, establishment of Christianity, um, and certainly sort of a Judeo-Christian heritage, you know, sort of a, a Catholic Protestant view, Jew alliance, um, and that that is disintegrating, right? The that sort of uh, Norman Rockwell. Uh, America um, seems to be seems to be falling apart into tribes and camps, and <clears throat> our Constitution was explicitly designed kind of to keep the factions from becoming inflamed and from feeling their power and and being encouraged to try to take power, uh, and that's worked well for a really long time. But I think that we are we're moving away from that. I think that social media is part of that. Uh, and and now people are becoming more aware of their differences instead of the things that bind them together. And uh, it feels like we've just kind of entered into a permanent state of kind of low-level warfare. So the language of modern liberal democracy does not mean liberal in the way that um, people sometimes think about that word or the way that it is used culturally to describe maybe what I would now call progressivism. So right. talk with us about, first of all, the word modern, and then what is a li- what is meant by a modern liberal democracy? <clears throat> yeah, well, okay, so modern, generally speaking, we're probably talking about uh, post-Reformation, post-Renaissance, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of post-Enlightenment into the modern period, so mostly the, the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, of course, the 21st that we're in now, although some people talk about whether we've entered into a post-modern phase. Um, <clears throat> the, the question of liberal – uh, the word liberal refers to liberty. So when we talk about the liberal arts, for example, we're talking about the things that a person should learn who has liberty, uh, a person who is a citizen, not a subject, a person who can govern themselves. That's what the liberal arts are for, the arts of a free person. Uh, it's funny because we're totally focused now on kind of vocational and professional training uh, but the ancients would have called that the servile arts. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, we we don't care about kind of studying uh, history or pol- politics or uh, philosophy, you know, things like that. We're only interested in sort of the, the professional training these days. But a liberal democracy is a democracy for free people who have human rights, who have the right to uh, to free speech, who have the right to to vote. Um, you know, typically with separation of church and state, those sorts of things. Okay, so in the beginning of this hour, we had a conversation with Peter Kapsner about this NCAA rule change related to student-athletes and being able to make money off of their own name, likeness, and image. 
I, you now have me thinking that part of what we are seeing there is an absolute betrayal of what higher education is supposed to be about. And really, when we're talking about student athletes and we're talking about not only schools making money off of them um, because of their ability to physically do something, but we're also selling them short in terms of what they're actually there to learn how to become, which is a citizen, not simply a servant of a particular vocation. Yeah, that is that's certainly the case. Um I mean, it seems pretty clear to me, and I think I think probably a lot of people see this is that that big time athletics uh, function more as a uh, a minor league or a staging ground for professional athletics uh, than they do really as educational institutions with regard to those players. So, you know, maybe here's what I'm trying to tie together in this conversation. It would seem to me that if what we want to be cultivating are really well-rounded, self-governing citizens, then then all of these uh, moves in the culture, and higher ed just happens to be a place that I can point to and say, wow, I feel like I see this a lot. I just had dinner on Sunday night with a, with a young man who, you know, the company that wants, that wants him to have a degree is basically paying him to go to school, but he will then be beholden to them to do the job that he will then be trained to do. And so that is really basically vocational training. That is not liberal arts in the most positive sense of that word, a liberal arts education preparing a person to be a good citizen. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, and part of that is is uh, is part of the blame there is laid at the feet of higher education. <clears throat> a lot of a lot of folks who teach in those traditional disciplines and, you know, I, I'm speaking as a dean of arts and sciences, uh, not speaking about my faculty members, but but bro- more broadly speaking in the U.S., a lot of a lot of the professors uh, in the liberal arts become so sort of dedicated to a left-wing view uh, that they kind of undermine the pursuit, right? You know, they they become obsessed with studying things, you know, was Shakespeare's uh, uncle gay? You know, that <laughs> these kind of fairly abstruse questions uh, that is don't abstruse, necessarily... Uh, is abstruse a word? <laughs> I think is that a so. word? I'm I writing that so. down. I if think it's a contraction. That... It sounds like a contraction of obtuse and abstract or something like that. That is the word no, of the day, look abstruse. It up. I'm look looking it up. it up right now, totally abstruse. <laughs> Abstru- That's the best word I've ever heard. There it is right there, difficult to understand, obscure. Thank you. Thank you. Hunter, Hunter Baker gets the word of the day award ding, 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 for ding, ding. Ab- abstruse, abstruse, difficult to understand, obscure. Everybody write that down. All right, go ahead. That was, now that, that I've completely that was very, interrupted that was your very, train of thought. That was very high risk. Uh, if I had been totally. wrong there, that would have been humiliating. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. It would not. We would not have allowed that. I make up words all the time, by the way. But there's nobody that's, like, courageous enough on the other end to call me out on it. So thank you. I now have a word of the day I'm really excited about, and I've completely interrupted your train of thought. I'm so sorry. That's okay. My point is simply that, uh, that you know, I think that in the educational institutions, we have we have sometimes become so dedicated to what is – fashionable or politically correct that we don't teach the students the kinds of things that they sh- that they should love and appreciate and that would make them better self-governing citizens. I love that. All right. Um, so, Hunter Baker, thank you so much for being with us as always. Uh, Union is on our short list uh, for Eliana, so I may be like seeing you in person soon 
on a little college visit. Uh, yeah, and come the, and see me. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and the word of the day for everyone out there listening is abstruse. The challenge will be to use this difficult to understand obscure word in a sentence. All right. Hey, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. So uh, having a little fun today with Peter Kapsner and Hunter Baker. Really appreciating uh, them today. Uh, Paul, you as well. Thank you for making it all happen. So uh, depending on what you are facing today, I just want to encourage you to remember you're not facing it alone. Um, So in this experience of, you know, being at the hospital hours on end, one of the things that, that you observe are the people who are you know, by themselves waiting for a child to come out of surgery or um, or waiting. They're just waiting. There's a lot of waiting at the hospital. And a lot of people seem to be waiting alone. And so I want to encourage us as Christians, first of all, to be mindful of the fact that although we may be physically alone in a moment, we are never alone. Um, and then also to be people who um, press ourselves into the lives of others in appropriate ways. I mean, don't be inappropriate, but it's okay to invade the bubble and and reach out and speak peace and smile and say kind things and greet one another um, with joy. And so if you're looking for a ministry opportunity today, if you're, you know, you're feeling a little sullen or a little underused, there are some ministry opportunities um, out there at your local hospital in the waiting room that uh, I would encourage you to maybe press into. Obviously, o- only in appropriate ways. Don't do so inappropriately. But that's a that's an underserved community. There's just lots of people sitting there waiting, and there's lots of time for conversation or cards or Scrabble or anything else that you might have in your pocket to to share in conversation with another person. All right, we got a whole nother hour. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.